Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisolo Hoko and Figuleni Ngwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, seven people killed in Sudan as civil disobedience campaign gets underway. and thousands of Liberians protest against corruption. In economics news, African leaders head to Geneva to attend UN Labour Conference. And in sports news, South Africa take on West Indies at the ICC Cricket World Cup. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. United Nations Assistant Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator Ashla Mello is in Zimbabwe to assess the response to Tropical Cyclone Idai, which made a landfall and claimed hundreds of lives in Manikaland three months ago. Cyclone Idai also destroyed infrastructure in the province. Mello, who arrived in southern Africa on June 5 on a seven-day assessment visit of the response to effects of Cyclone Idai, in Zimbabwe, Mozambique and Malawi will also assess other humanitarian challenges affecting all the countries hit by the weather phenomenon. According to the UN, about 3 million people were affected by Idai across the three countries. Ride-hailing providers Uber has officially responded to media reports in Ghana claiming one of its drivers had been arrested in connection with the kidnap of two Canadian women earlier this week. The state-run Daily Graphic reported that police had arrested an unnamed Uber driver for his role in the incident which happened in the Ashanti regional capital, Kumasi. But Uber said its driver was not a suspect in the case and was only helping police with investigations. Reports said he had transported the kidnapped ladies earlier from their residence, hence his alleged arrest. The head of communications for Uber West Africa, Francesca Uriri, told the press that the incident was unfortunate, but that police had confirmed that their driver was not a suspect. Two Sudanese rebel leaders have been arrested shortly after meeting visiting Ethiopian Prime Minister Ibi Ahmed, who is trying to mediate in a crisis threatening a transition to democracy. Ahmed urged Sudan's military rulers and civilian opposition to exercise bravery in trying to agree to steps towards democracy after the worst bloodshed since the overthrow in April of President Omar Bashir. The Ethiopian Prime Minister visited days after Sudanese forces stormed a protest camp 
outside the defense ministry in Khartoum, where demonstrators were demanding civilian rule. Dozens of people have been killed since Monday. While no breakthrough was announced at the end of Abiy's one-day visit, an aide to the Ethiopian leader said the talks went well and that Ahmed would be returning to Sudan soon. Niger and Tunisia are among countries elected as non-permanent members to the Security Council for a period of two years. Seven candidates ran for five seats, including Vietnam, St. Vincent and Romania, among others. Tunisia Foreign Minister Kimis Genois says Tunisia will be the voice for human rights. All five non-permanent members of the Security Council will start their mandate on 1st January 2020. They will replace Cote d'Ivoire, Equatorial Guinea, Kuwait, Peru and Poland, whose mandates expire on 31 December 2019. And police are still searching for three suspects after an attempted assassination on the South African Broadcasting Corporation's chief audit executive, Tamizu Gode, on Friday night. One man who has been arrested remains in police custody, while three others managed to flee following a shootout with Zagode outside his home. The SABC says Zagode was a target because of the corruption cases that he has been working on. Police spokesperson Mawela Masondo says the matter is receiving high-level attention. The docket has been assigned to senior detectives from the station and provincial level who are working hard uh, to get to the bottom of the matter and to trace the suspects that are still at large. But there is information that we, we, we received from the, from the suspect that is still uh, in hospital under police guard. For Channel African News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Reports from Sudan say at least seven people have been killed in a few hour, a few hours ago by security forces. The deaths occurred on the second day of a civil disobedience campaign by protesters that is expected to run until Sudan's ruling generals transfer power to a civilian government. Channel Africa's James Shimayula has more. The death of 70 demonstrators comes exactly a week after more than 100 others were killed by security forces during demonstrations. The deaths in the capital Khartoum were preceded by intermittent confrontation between demonstrators and security forces. Listen to this sound that sums up what happened in Khartoum. A 
As the sound of gunshots and screams died down in Khartoum, one of the country's prominent activists, Fahima Mohamed Aziz, briefly explained what the people of Sudan want now. Our country has shed the blood. So the woman now is coming out to say no. We are saying no. We are saying to all people that women said they want peace, stability, and prosperity. My voice to UN Secretary General to please give order to Khartoum government to come out, out of Jili. And please, we want peace. We want you to participate, to bring peace to our country. Samir Mubarak, one of the leaders of women demonstrators, says citizens of Sudan are tired with what she described as lies of the ruling military council. We want civilians to rule this country, she says emphatically. Power to the civilians. There's no room for negotiation. The crackdown still continues. That was Samahi Mubarak one of the leaders of women demonstrators. As has been said at the beginning, the killings in Sudan have been carried out by security forces belonging to the country's rapid support force. The forces led by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, deputy head of the ruling military council. This is how Alexander Maura, an expert on Sudan, characterized General Dagalo. He is a very strategic player. Is a very key instrumental person who can rely upon to restore calm, to restore normalcy. Burhan and Dagalo uh, are very close. Do you think that Dagalo uh, can usurp power from Burhan, or Burhan will uh, keep Dagalo closer to his chest as number two? Given that it is Dagalo who actually suppressed the demonstrators when he sent his uh, forces known as Janjawi to dismantle the city that was outside the military headquarters on Nile Road uh, near Nile River. That is a very good question. I would say that uh, given the unpredictable nature of this leadership, however close they are, you know, both of them command very significant influence in Sudan. So I would say that too early to predict outcome of this relationship. So anything can turn either way. Buharo can, can betray Dagalo. So this is a very volatile situation. So we can only hope for the best. But for now, I don't have so much optimism on the two because they can decide to betray each other. Looking at the Sudan Professional Association, do you think uh, given that uh, it is spearheaded uh, the demonstrations, in fact, without Sudan People's Association, we would not have had the massive demonstrations that brought people from the marginalized areas like the Noba Mountains leading to the arrest of um, the leader of uh, Sudan People's Liberation uh, Army. He's called Yasir Arman Tuhar. They had the organization power, they had the mobilization power, but they should not uh, overestimate their role in the demonstration. So I would say that even Sudan People's Liberation Army had a critical role to play in the mobilization, especially at the grassroots level where they disgruntled the rule of people felt uh, a sense of anger towards the uh, government in Sudan. So I would say that sometimes I'm worried that uh, Sudan professional association is uh, overestimating their power. Sometimes they are being too stubborn. They are not willing to sit down and negotiate. Well, this is a situation which is very volatile. Do you think uh, in the days to come we shall have a semblance of peace in Khartoum or you think it's a continuation of uh, events that have been going on, namely arrest of people, 
clash with the young men, let's sing a barricade on the road. Tradition is that uh, resumption of normalcy is a tall order for now. Clash between the military or security forces is likely to continue. More arrests are likely to continue. And uh, the situation for now, I can say it's very gloomy. Remember that so many people have so far died. So I can say now we should not expect some light at the end of the tunnel. Actually, it's a gloomy situation. That was Alexander Maura, an expert on Sudan, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. The embattled mayor of South Africa's Eteguini Metropolitan Municipality, Zandile Kumete, is said to have been asked by the ruling ANC provincial leadership to take leave of absence. Kumete, who is also the party's regional chairperson, is out on bail of 50,000 rands for allegedly defrauding the municipality about 208 million rands through refuse removal tenders. During the Provincial Executive Committee meeting held in Mpangeni, the provincial leadership also disbanded ANC Eteguini Regional Executive Committee. Vusimakosini reports. Kumete has been asked by the provincial leadership to take leave in the municipality while attending her fraud and corruption case. Last month, the mayor, alongside with some senior municipal officials, appeared before the Deben Commercial Crimes Court. Speaking during the opening of the ANC, was Natalie Hutler, provincial chairperson Silas Galala, reiterated an earlier decision that party deployees charged with serious offences should vacate their positions. Without saying comrades who are charged are guilty, as the PEC we want to affirm the decision we've taken, we've taken a view that anyone who is charged for any serious case will have to step down from the deployment in the office and the ANC subject that matter to processes within the movement and the ANC should finalize those processes within 30 days. And that stepping down means a comrade who is charged must take a leave, but if a comrade is not taking a voluntary leave, the ANC will be compelled to remove that comrade. And not recalling him or her through negotiation, but through recalling, through convening, a structure and ensure that members of the ANC vote out that person. The ANC provincial leadership also took stock of the party's performance in last month's general elections. During elections, the party in the province recorded a decline from 64% in 2014 to 57% during last month's general elections. This is a decline from 52 seats in 2014 to 44 seats. Zigalala explains that the division suffered by the organization leading to 2015 provincial conference and the 2017 national conference, the divisions we suffered during the 2016 local government elections, which especially were centered on the selection of candidates, as well as the failure to render effective services are among the major reasons that led to the decline we have seen uh, in the elections. We take this regress we suffered 
in a collective but more responsible way. Division, ill-discipline, corruption, and lack of providing proper services to the people are among the reasons that have led to the decline we saw in, on the 8th of May. Meanwhile, Kumete is not the only ANC mayor charged with serious offences. Newcastle Mayor Dr. Dutuho Matlaba is also facing removal from his position. He is charged with the murder of the late Emalatleni Youth League Deputy Chairperson Wandi Lungubeni. Ngubeni was shot dead at a bar in Matatin Township in 2016. I am Vosimakosin in Bangini. Sudanese security forces fired tear gas and live ammunition to disperse protesters setting up barricades in Khartoum over the weekend. At least seven people were killed in the northern district of Bahari, according to doctors aligned to the opposition. Campaigners call for ongoing civil disobedience from Sunday to make it as difficult as possible for the military to govern Sudan. The call comes days after a military crackdown left dozens dead. Meanwhile, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed met with military leaders in an attempt to mediate in the crisis and restart talks between the Transitional Military Council. For the latest, we are now joined on the line by Ahmed El Zobair, a researcher on Sudan for the rights group Amnesty International. Ahmed, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Now, what is the situation like in Sudan at the moment following the violence over the weekend? Well, um, yesterday, of course, as a mass uh, uh, civil disobedience, people just stayed at home and there is no any movement. And I think many shops and markets were closed and shut down. I think there is some kind of incidence of uh, uh, killings took place in Khartoum North early in the morning of yesterday. Uh, as far as uh, we are aware, there is two people who were killed yesterday in Khartoum. But I think there is other figures reported by other uh, groups as well. But the situation is uh, tense, and uh, opposition group determined to continue. I think the military council uh, they also are not uh, compromising so far. I think the initiative by the Prime Minister of Ethiopia might work or might not work, but we'll wait and see. Now, the vast majority of Sudanese agree on the necessity to dismantle the remnants of the government, which uh, they feel that uh, with uh, having been there with uh, Omar al-Bashir over the number of years, you know, they want, a, 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 you know, not a military council, but... Uh, an inclusive government of the people of Sudan. Would you say the attacks on protesters over the weekend will strengthen this majority view? Of course, yeah. I think that's what... I mean, the, the, the first thing, the initial uh, um, negotiation between the opposition and the military council is about sharing power, especially at the level of the uh, Supreme Council, uh, which is like, talking about five, five, six, seven, something like that. But at the moment, people talking about, you know, the whole government should be civilian-led government uh, because the behavior of the military council and the security uh, agents during um, last week, since Monday, 
12th of June. And I think that escalates the tension, escalates the anger, and, and also uh, I would like to report sadness as well in Sudan because people not, were not expecting something like that to happen. Now, uh, the military Chicago. council, uh, Ahmed, the military um, uh, council, why do they not want to let go of power? Why are they holding on to power? Is it fear of the unknown? I think uh, you can call it for multiple reasons. I think the, the fear of accountability as well, because um, some of these um, officers are implicated in human rights violations, either um, with the Bashir regime in, in, in different parts of Sudan, also in Darfur. By the way, there is some kind of geopolitical reasons. As you know, Sudan, unfortunately, have these uh, regional powers. They want Sudan to maintain some kind of relation, especially in relation to the, uh, the war in Yemen. And I think these kind of interests, uh, uh, it's really, that's the reason, I think one of the key reasons that's why these are reluctant to let go. And the other thing is like, um, especially issues around corruption. Um, and I see the civilian uh, groups are determined to get rid of uh, corruption in Sudan and to, to try those who are really uh, stole some money from the Sudanese people and also to try the people who commit human rights violations from the regime and, and this group as well. Now, looking at the intervention of Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abe Ahmed, um, immediately after that, uh, people were arrested. People of the opposition, the protesters, were arrested. What does this mean going forward? Well, that, that's um, uh, the dilemma here in Sudan. You know, uh, uh, this group, specifically of those who were arrested, they are members of the Sudan People Liberation Movement, uh, North. Uh, they actually, they, they came back to Sudan to promote peace. They said, well, I'm not going to, you know, um, fight any government after what's happening since the 11th of April. So it's, it's a goodwill kind of gesture. And instead of, uh, you know, talking to them and try to, to make sense of their uh, attempt, to, to be part of the process in Khartoum, uh, they were arrested. And uh, we don't know. That's a dangerous part of it. We don't know where, it, at what location. Because uh, we spoke to their families. They told us they went to the, the national security agent, agencies. They told them we don't know anything. They contact some part of the military council. They said they don't know anything about it. And this is really, it seems to me like kidnapping more than detention. It's quite worrying. Now, difficult questions remain about peace and stability um, post the Omar al-Bashir rule in Sudan. Now, given how Bashir ruled Sudan and the actions of the military currently, this is greatly concerning. Should the system of governance in post-Bashir in Sudan be based on fundamental freedoms that uh, the people of Sudan fought for Omar al-Bashir to be removed from power? Well, I think that's, that's, that's um, the road forward. That's the uh, that's, um, future of Sudan. And I think if you listen to the slogans, by the protesters since December 2018, they just have three words, freedom, justice, and equality. And as they continue to say that, and I think um, as Amnesty International also, we, we submitted like 10 priorities for the um, transition period. We suggested that, you know, the kind of respect of the 
basic freedoms by the transitional government and you know the account issues of accountability especially for those committed crime during the former regime uh, period and issues related to the ICC which is something that's still hanging on the on, on Sudan is related to the crime committed in Darfur. Uh, we presented something. And I think other groups also presented some kind of roadmap for the way forward respecting human rights, a central part of that, and also accommodating uh, different political views. And I think they, that's uh, everybody sees that's the future, especially in relation to the uh, establishing military as a civilian-led uh, government. The AU very decisive in their stance and their action, suspending Sudan from the African Union and any activity regarding the African Union. Do you think possible sanctions will put more pressure on uh, the military council um, to bring uh, the democratic opposition together and the military council to work towards the um, civilian rule that the people of Sudan are looking for? I think that's one of the one of the um, tactics that usually could be useful because um, uh, some of these um, uh, military officers they are new to government. And they, I think some of them they think it's easy way just you know shoot, kill, and do whatever you like once you are in power. And I think this will some uh, it gives them some kind of um, you know uh, they'll pay attention now. You know you cannot do stuff like that while in power especially during this, um, you know, uh, time. And I think that the decision by the African Union is a very strong one. I think I think also took note of that because that even regionally, um, this kind of behavior are not acceptable. Uh, and I think uh, this kind of pressure, it work. It work in different settings sometimes. Uh, it takes maybe longer time, but I think it might work. Now, since independence, Sudan has been a highly centralized government raising the question of how far efforts to basically constitutionally mitigate um, the control of the central government over uh, the peripheries. So should these areas that are less developed than the central government be enabled to determine and control their political uh, or economic and cultural destinies? Well, uh, this is the issues being debated in Sudan for a long pe- period of time: federalism and centralism. I think uh, I think the consensus now is around decentralization of power. Uh, there is a kind of proposal uh, of um, dividing Sudan to you know six regions instead of 18 now um, states. Uh, that basically that was to to cut the cost because, as you know. Part of the, one of the reasons why people protest because of the economic crisis in Sudan, and there is a lot of uh, spending by local and uh, state government. And I think this is kind of arrangement might work given the current situation. And also the issue of uh, marginalisation and lack of development is, is specifically in areas like in Darfur, South Kordofan, and Blue Nile. This uh, needs to be given priority. And I think that priority in terms of uh, arriving to a, a suitable peace arrangement with the armed group in that part of uh, Sudan, and also priority in terms of development and, uh, and other priorities like health, education, and economic 
opportunities for people from that region. Now, lastly, um, Ahmed, you know, the dismantling of uh, Omar al-Bashir as a dictator and uh, the establishment uh, of uh, democracy in Sudan, very important, extremely important. But are they sufficient enough to maintain unity among the Sudanese, given the issue around, uh, um, you know, the question of identity, aspects of identity beyond religion? It's not going to be easy. It's going to be extremely difficult. Uh, and I think uh, looking at the, the momentum and the wave of especially young people and young women uh, joining this protest and since December, I think there might be hope because if you look at these kind of um, aspirations by this young uh, generation of the Sudanese, there might be a hope of uh, establishing a uh, free country and establishing democratic institutions and because they are, they are you know open up to different things around them now globally and uh, and they become aware about their rights as well and this, this is very important um, I think we just hope they, 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 the current military Council allow and respect the freedom of these young people uh, to, to freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, because these are very vital uh, component of uh, any progress in any society. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. We we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That was Ahmed Elobeza, a researcher on Sudan for the Rights Group. Amnesty International joining us on the line. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, two Sudanese rebel leaders arrested shortly after meeting visiting Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, who is uh, trying to mediate in a crisis threatening a transition to democracy. UN Assistant Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Deputy Emergency Relief Coordinator Ashla Mella is in Zimbabwe to assess the response to tropical cyclone Idai, which made a landfall and claimed hundreds of lives in Manikaland three months ago. And ride-hailing provider Uber officially responds to media reports in Ghana, claiming that one of its drivers had been arrested in connection with the kidnap of two Canadian women last week. Details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has announced that its Federal Council Chairperson, James Self, 
will step down at the party's next sitting of the Federal Council in October. DA leader Musimaimani made the announcement during a media briefing on Sunday following two days of the party's Federal Council meeting in Johannesburg. The party also announced that it has set up an independent organizational review panel to look at the party's fitness to achieve its objective of building a constitutional liberal democratic alternative to the ruling ANC. Our reporter Nomalizo has more. In his announcement, the DA leader Musi Maimane highlighted James Self's achievements in the 19 years he's held the position, such as being in the forefront of the litigations on the Nkandla and the spy tapes cases against former President Jacob Zuma. Maimane says Self will now be heading the party's governance unit, tasked with supporting DA-controlled governments to ensure that they deliver better to citizens. James remains in our party, will head up the governance unit and will step down from the chair of federal executive in October at that next federal council. And James has done an incredible job and an honourable one for our organisation. And the fortunes of the DA going towards 2021 then become absolutely vital in ensuring that our governments work well. The outgoing federal council chairperson expressed his gratitude to the party, adding that he's looking forward to his new role. But it has been a great privilege uh, to have served in that way um, and I really would like to pay tribute not only to the leaders but also to all the members of the Federal Council and the Federal Executive who have assisted me, uh, to my deputies uh, and to my Chief of Staff. So it really has been a great journey and I look forward to the new challenge that I have been given. Reflecting on last month's national and provincial elections, the opposition leader admitted to disappointing results, saying that he, as the leader, takes full responsibility and that he remains committed to the project of building one South Africa for all. He announced the decision to initiate an independent organizational review panel. The review will investigate the underlying drivers of the party's performance in the 2019 general elections, among other things. Maimane explains. It will focus on building a constitutional liberal democratic alternative to the current government, review and investigate underlying drivers of the party's performance in the the general elections, and will also encompass the capacity of party leadership, uh, public representatives, political identity, policy platform, strategy, structure, processes, and operation, as well as other considerations that may be relevant in achieving the party's objectives. A visibly annoyed Maimane dismissed questions about former Western Cape Premier Helen Ziller's claims that she was sidelined during the campaign. Maimane reduced her former leader's role to that of an ordinary member of the party, leading to federal chairperson Athol Trollope to interject. Genuinely, she's an ordinary member of the party. So there was no campaign? Uh, Where? To uh, to the contrary, actually. She was uh, involved in the campaign, right up until the end of the campaign. So if she was being crushed out of the campaign, she wouldn't have been participating. Helen Zilla participated and promoted the DA across the country. She was an integral part of our campaign. The review will take place between now and the party's next federal council meeting in October this year. 
That report by Numalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. A South Africa's ruling ANC veteran and struggle stalwart Laura Mpatwa has been laid to rest at Ngambetlane Farm near Mtata in the Eastern Cape Province. She was afforded a special provincial official funeral. Scores of mourners, including politicians, academics, the clergy and business people from the area, came to pay their last respects. Fundiswam Plegute reports. A funeral service befitting a heroine. Eastern Cape Premier Oscar Mabuyane, Presidential Spokesperson Kusela Digo, President of the ANC Veterans League Dr. Snooki Zikalala and UDM leader Bantu Olomisa were among the mourners. She was described as a selfless person and businesswoman who dedicated her time to making life better for the poor and the downtrodden. NAFCO President Sabelo Matingwane says he learned a lot about business from Aunt Laura. If you want a definition in a community worker, a community leader, here it is. Some people leave vacant when they go, but people of substance and great impact live a legacy. Speaking as a family friend, UDM leader Bantu Olomisa says Dr. Mpatha was a beacon of hope. And Laura was larger than life and a mother to many. She was universally loved and respected in the Transkai. She will be remembered as an activist in her own right, but also for the fact that she made a mother's largest sacrifice when her children went to exile. Her children and grandchildren paid a moving tribute to her. One of her sons, Luyanda Mpashwa, told the mourners about how their mother raised them during the difficult times of apartheid. It is difficult to imagine this home without you. You shared your values and wisdom with us in a very gentle way. She believed so much in education and our self-development. We learned from a very early age that our home was open to all our friends and others whom we hardly knew. Her involvement in politics, in our minds, was never direct, but it was very practical and very community-based. We understand now why the Premier has motivated for her to receive a special official provincial funeral. Her grandchildren say their grandmother was a caring woman who put everyone else's needs before her own. She's always encouraged me personally to be my best self, and she would always remind me that Sebenzile, you can do anything and everything with the right attitude and hard work. Last year, my school came to the Transkai for a two-week hike. We hiked through from Port St. John's all the way down. When we stopped at Ultra City to fill up the bus, I got a call from Kuluza. She said, wait five minutes, I'll be there. And she arrived with Uncle Teddy, and they brought about 30 Amaguinia. <laughs> and those 30 Amaguinia lasted us the whole of the two weeks. Kluza, you are a God-fearing, loving, caring woman who always put others before yourself. Your heart and wisdom and passion was one of a kind. Delivering the eulogy on behalf of the provincial government, Premier Oscar Mabuyane said, Aunt Laura would have been proud of the renewal project the ANC has embarked on. Truth be told, we have emotionally abused the veterans of our struggle with, with our misdemeanors over the past few years, particularly when we displayed arrogance, when they tried to offer us words of wisdom to avert the downward spiral trend of our movement. Nevertheless, I'm quite certain that the pain caused by these shenanigans of the past few years had eased on Oman. 
particularly when she saw that ANC is only a renewal part. ANC will be renewed, ANC will be united and stronger to lead the National Democratic Revolution. Aunt Laura is survived by her four children, 16 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. I am Fundesomsekute in Mtata. Channel Africa. Kultanjoy Adi Sababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. The UN Relief Agency from Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, says unless more emergency funding is received by the end of this month, 46,000 children will be unable to start the new school year, along with major cuts to health and other basic services. That's the warning coming from Gwyn Lewis, director of UNRWA operations in the West Bank, who was at UN headquarters with her counterpart in Gaza to outline the continuing funding crisis stemming from the United States' decision to withdraw support last year. She spoke to Matt Wells of UN News. We are facing significant financial challenges. On one side, uh, we have our core funding, which is extremely um, important for the running of schools. We have 94 schools in the West Bank, as well as 42 health centres, reef and social services programme, sanitation programme, so an integrated support for the Palestinian refugee community in the West Bank. Um, and funding for that program across all of the five fields in which UNRWA works is really critical and we're reaching a funding crisis as of the end of June. So we have a big pledging conference at the end of June, so we're coming here to highlight some of those financial challenges. And on the other side is the emergency response in the, the territories. We, we have a big funding gap in Gaza, but also in the West Bank because of the, the, the very high rates of violence in the West Bank. We're trying to respond to um, increased levels of child attention and issues around uh, tear gas inhalation and violence in the camps. So we're looking for funding for that and for the, the abject poor families so, in the West Bank. So what kind of impact has the withdrawal of funding, mainly from the US, of course, uh, mm-hmm. last year, had on UNRWA's operations during the past uh, few months? So we were lucky because after the US decided to cut their funding uh, last year, there was incredible solidarity from the international community. So in addition to um, uh, over 40 countries supporting us with additional funding, um, we also made uh, efficiency in our overall spending and, and our programs. So we were able to reach the end of the year and maintain all of our services. But it really did have an impact on how the services are managed. We had to increase the class size, for example, um, because we couldn't um, replace all of the teachers that we needed when they retired. Um, the same with the number of uh, patients per doctor is higher than it was before. Um, and in the West Bank, we had to, we lost about 150 colleagues, 150 staff who were... Who had to be laid off. Had to be laid off, yes, um, because of, of cuts in the funding. Obviously, the challenges that you face in the West Bank have, are different from those in Gaza, in some ways less acute, but mm. nonetheless, there are serious challenges that you are 
having to deal with. Just just outline mm. some of the you know the very practical ways um, in which services are going to have to be further cut mm-hmm. unless you get more money. Um, if if we were not to receive more funding, um, we wouldn't be able to open the schools in September, which would be uh, very, very uh, serious. I mean, we have uh, 46,000 children in our schools in the West Bank, so uh, it would have a huge impact on the community. Um, but also on basic health ser- uh, healthcare, um, primary healthcare is one of our core uh, activities, and that means doctors and nurses would no longer be available to the community. Um, uh, social welfare payments wouldn't be paid to about 60,000 families and we wouldn't be able to do garbage collection in the camp which you know is, uh, seems relatively trivial but when you have 19 camps and people are there to pick up the garbage and the whole sanitation and, and um, safety and health is linked to that uh, it, it, it has a huge impact on the community what's different about UNRWA as compared to other UN agencies is that the majority of our staff are implementing on the ground so 95% of them are Palestinian refugees themselves that are providing services directly so they're teachers and doctors and nurses and social workers so cuts in funding means they will no longer be able to work so money is really not being wasted. I mean, it's all going to the, those people who are the most in need. Absolutely. And um, what, what last year did was made us um, really look at efficiencies and, and reduce costs where we could. Um, but there's a limit to that. And there's only so many cuts that you can make without really impacting on, on services to people. And, and there's only so many children you can fit into a classroom. I mean, without being melodramatic, mm. what would the consequences be if UNRWA ceased to provide these services in the West Bank? Well, the, the big concern is, one, one, there's the very human level of people losing their jobs. There's 4,000 staff in the West Bank. Um, but then, obviously, the impact on services, on the community and on their families, because they would have no longer any income. But then there are other repercussions in terms of stability. Um, would there be civil unrest in the West Bank, potentially, and what would be the bigger consequences? There are 830,000 refugees in the West Bank. So almost certainly it would have a negative impact on what is already a situation of political gridlock right now in terms of the peace process mm. and the whole uh, push towards a two-state solution. Absolutely, and not only that, but the, the, the Palestinian Authority itself is really facing a financial situation now. because That was Gwyn Lewis, Director of UNRWA Operations in the West Bank, speaking to Matt Walls of UN News. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is jetting off to Geneva, Switzerland for the International Labour Organization Centenary Conference. The ILO conference has as the theme Building a Better Future with Decent Work. Ramaphosa, as the co-chair of the ILO Global Commission, alongside the Swedish Prime Minister, will deliver the Future of Work report. Technological advancement, demography, globalization and climate change are on the agenda. Abongile Dumago reports. The Future of Work report has made 10 recommendations guided by the human-centered agenda. This agenda was launched in KZN in March this year. The ILO's International Labour Conference takes place annually and is attended by the 187 member states, including South Africa. Ramaphosa will be accompanied by Tulas Nwesi, Minister of Employment and Labour, and a NEDLEC delegation. Abongile Tumago, SABC News, Johannesburg. 
The South African Airways says debt repayments and maintenance of aircraft are the carrier's biggest expenses. The airline has been facing dire financial challenges which have ultimately led to the resignation of its CEO, Vuyane Chahana, SAA's interim CEO, Zukisa Ramaisa. The most cost item that you have really is the interest on, on what you already owe. When you owe a lot that amount of money or when you need that amount of money or when you go to the bank, the fact that uh, you, there's a lot of money that you need or to, to service your debt as well as even as, a, as, as, as money that you need to do your work, you yeah. know, your, your cash. But uh, one of the things that is uh, expensive, I think, that you want to know in South African airlines is also the maintenance. You know, our aging fleet as well, they come into the fall. A group of 30 international and local Ugandan uh, campaign groups have petitioned two banks to abandon plans to raise funds to build an oil pipeline to export Ugandan oil, saying the project would damage local livelihoods, water resources and wildlife. The 1.4-kilometer pipeline, which will run from fields in the west of Uganda to Tanzania's Indian Ocean port of Tanga, is vital to developing the East African nation's oil reserves. South Africa's Standard Bank Group and Japan's Sumito Mitsui Banking Corporation are helping to raise the debt needed to finance the 3.5 billion US dollar pipeline. China and Russia have agreed to lift their relations to a comprehensive strategic partnership of coordination for a new era, opening a new stage of bilateral cooperation conducive to global stability and prosperity. Seven decades after its establishment, the China-Russia diplomatic relationship has reached its highest level in history under the strategic leadership of Chinese President Xi Jinping and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin. China and Russia have different advantages in natural resources and technologies, and their economies are highly complementary, which can translate into a substantial increase in trade and investment in coming years. Namibia's Transport Minister John Motorwa has reiterated the government's support for the development of the country into a leading logistic hub in southern Africa. The minister said this during a familiarization tour of Wolves Bay Corridor Heads uh, Group's head office in the capital, Ventuk. Motorwa met the company's board of directors, acting CEO, and the company's management team, where he was given an update on the company's mandate and various projects it manages. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.86 Nigerian Naira, 10.82 Botswana Pula, 99.65 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.23 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.87 Brazilian Rail, 64.78 Russian Ruble, 69.21 Indian Rupee, 6.94 Chinese Yuan, and 14.92 to the South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,329, platinum $806 pounds, so the price of Brent crude oil is at $63.53 a barrel. Channel Africa, your favorite channel. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
Now sports update this hour. We begin with cricket news. A combination of injury and poor form means that South African national cricket team, the Proteas, will likely make changes to their starting 11 for today's crucial World Cup clash against the West Indies at the Rose Bowl. Having lost all three of their matches at the tournament so far, the Proteas are desperate for a win to finally kickstart their campaign. While the injuries and off-field issues have certainly been disruptive, they cannot excuse what has happened on the field where South Africa have not been anywhere near good enough, particularly with a bad. Aiden Makram was dropped from Wednesday's clash against India, but given how shaky the Proteas' top order was against India, he will surely be considered strongly for a return. With Stain and Ngidi both out, the Proteas played two spinners against India, but now that Hendricks has settled in into the squad, they have the option to build up and bulk up their fast bowling stocks once more. South African national football team of Ramafana Koshar Baksa announced a 23-man squad yesterday afternoon for the Africa Cup of Nations in Egypt later this month. Baxter had to trim the squad from 30 players just before the team departs for a mini-camp in Dubai today. As you can imagine, this has not been an easy process. It's certainly not made easier when we have issues within the camp. You know, with the early injury to Keegan Dolly, which was a, which was a blow... Then Rivaldo called in the day of the the day of the assembly and told us of his mother's very serious illness, and after that we haven't heard anything from him. So uh, we were concerned about that. So now I'll give you the players first. I'm going to give you all the support staff so that you've got that as well. And the goalkeepers are, as you know, Darren Keat, Ron Wing Williams, and Bruce Boomer. Defenders Daniel Cardoso. Rama Paklele, Tanani Klatswayo, Innocent Maela, Ciso Klanti, Butlam Kunazi, and Tamim Kizi. Midfield players are Bongani Zungu, Klompo Kakana, Dean Furman, Kamo Mokocho, Sugar Mabunda, Tulani Serero, Tembi Lorch, and Temba Zwani. And the strikers are Lebo Matiba, Percy Tau, Lars Veldvik, Lebo Maboy, and Sivasiso Vilakazi. Meanwhile, the South African national women's football team, Bayanwanyana, may have went down 3-1 to Spain in their World Cup debut encounter in France on Saturday. But coach Desiree Ellis has praised her troops for a prudent display. Bayana will now face off against 1999 finalist China in Paris on Thursday. And Ellis says they will analyze the Asians thoroughly. It is now obviously our final. It's a must win. Um, I think it's a must win for them too. Um, but it's a must win for us. And with this performance, we can only grow and get better. And now that the first game is out of the way and a lot of the nerves and anxiousness is out of the way, uh, you know, uh, as I said, this team is very focused. Um, they will look at, at, at the footage and look at what they can do better. And uh, we will have a game plan, obviously. Um, and we've got to win the next game if we have any hope of going through to, to, to the next round. But that is really key for us to win the next game. Um, we didn't get the result we wanted, but uh, we will have a plan um, and, and obviously sit down and see uh, what we need to do to, to, to win the game. And finally, rugby news. The South African rugby side Stormers picked up an important win when they beat the Sun Wolves 31-18 at Newlands Rugby Stadium. Coach Robbie Fleck says it was a good win and while disappointed to concede a late try to deny the bonus point, it was the win that was most important. I think that, um, you know, we spoke about it during the week, you know. First and foremost was to get the win 
um, you know, and and we needed to we, we need to get two wins out of the last two games, um, which puts us on 38. And so at least we've given ourselves a fighting chance now to qualify. Um, yeah, look, um, with a bonus point, um, obviously it was disappointing to leak it at the end there. Um, I felt that we had worked hard to get, um, you know, three tries up. And then a mistake at the end there on the kickoff um, let them back in the game and then, um, you know, they scored their try. But, you know, it's um, it would have been ideal, you know, Corner Ferry was over the line and got stripped, you know, on the try line. So we fought our way back to get another opportunity to get that bonus point. But... Uh, like I said, you know, first things first was to get the win. Um, it's the same as next week, you know. It's all about the win, um, and, and that's it, you know. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Seven people killed in Sudan as civil disobedience campaign gets underway. And thousands of Liberians protest against corruption. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.